fifth week of six weeks studying the Old Testament book of Exodus. This morning, we are going to be taking a look at some of the most famous and iconic passages when we look at Israel's coming to the foot of Mount Sinai and God creating this covenant community with them. Uh, If you've heard of the Ten Commandments before or have anyone have opinions about them, we will also be walking through and reevaluating God's intention and plan as he gives laws, rules, and instructions for our lives. If you've been with us for the last four weeks, you've heard us walk through Exodus, we began by making the argument that Exodus and knowing Old Testament books like Exodus is significant because it gives us a guidance and a method of how to understand all of the rest of Scripture, that there is a pattern as we read Scripture that is so evident in Exodus, creation, enslavement, freedom, renewal, creation, enslavement, freedom, Renewal. We see that in Exodus, and it is a framework all throughout the Bible. In our second week, we looked at Moses, poor Moses, broken Moses, as he meets God in a burning bush in the desert south of Egypt, and talked about God's call and plan to partner with broken humanity, and what that means that he works through imperfect people like Moses, like you and I. Then we talked about God's provision in the miraculous and the mundane, whether it's getting us through uh, the rock in a hard place and walking through a Red Sea, or whether it is the mundane provision of our daily bread, our meals each day. Last week, Brandon preached a powerful word talking about the blood that was put on the doors, Passover, the 10 plagues, and our call in Jesus who provides his blood to bring us freedom. This morning, we're going to be looking at Exodus 19. You can join with me there if you want. Grab Bibles or underneath half of your chairs. I'll be reading from the NLT. It'll be on the screen behind. There are also notes out in the lobby if you didn't grab them on your way in. They are a helpful tool as we walk through this Old Testament book. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. After breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and he said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings And brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. So Moses returned to the mountain, and he called together the elders of the people, and he told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the covenants that you make with us, your people. Lord, we pray that as we look at this Old Testament covenant, we look at these ancient peoples joining into a covenant relationship with you. God, may we be reminded of the covenant we have in Christ Jesus that that promise, that partnership continues on. May you speak to us through your word in your name. Amen. 
The title of this sermon is Getting Egypt Out of Israel. We see the miraculous events in the first third of Exodus is God getting Israel out of Egypt. They are enslaved to this kingdom, to this empire, to this power. It is important even that as they talk about Pharaoh, it doesn't name which Pharaoh this is. We don't know. Scholars have argued and tried to figure out. But it is not about one evil man. It is about the concept of human empires, human kingdoms that rule with power and murder and authority and threat and enslavement. And it is God bringing his people out of that empire. We see the miraculous he does to do that. But many scholars will argue and theologians have said the hardest work of Exodus is not getting the Israelites out of Egypt, but it is getting the mentality of Egypt out of his people, Israel. Their bodies may be free. They may visually be free. Their location may have changed. But we see evidence after evidence of mind and heart still enslaved. We see this in the modern world. There are a lot of illustrations and examples of this. Maybe most powerfully is a soldier coming back from war. Their body may be back home, maybe back in their town, but we see the struggles and the modern struggles of psychologists working with soldiers whose minds and hearts are still in fight or flight, are still in the trauma, are still back at war. How do I, now that my body is here, align my mind and my heart into it? Maybe you are a second or third or first generation immigrant into the United States or you've changed your nation that you live in and part of your mind and your heart is still back home, still who we used to be, who I was in that culture. How do I make that transition? You see it classically in families who have immigrated to the United States, that argument in the second and third generation. Who are we now? Our bodies are here. Our language is different Who are we? How does our mind and heart align with the location of my body? This is even true and present when it comes to grief. Whatever it is that we lose, whether it's another person or a relationship, an opportunity, a calling that we thought we had that no longer is, we grieve over what we thought our life would be. Our body is not living in that reality anymore, but it takes time for our mind and our heart to catch up with where our body is is. In the smallest of settings is trying to ground ourselves back into the present. Anxiety often tells us we're somewhere else. Our mind is somewhere else not present with our reality. I was a waiter for a few years while I was in college. It is not the right job for me. I hated trying to upsell people into a new drink or a new food or special that they had. It just made me feel gross and dirty, and they ordered a water, and I'm like, sure, you don't want a fun, happy, speckled lemonade with that drink. I just feel like dirty inside as I did this. Um, One guy drank four of them, and then at the end, I was like, sir, I... uh, Those are not free refills, and it was an explosive argument afterwards. I would get anxiety sitting in the back of the kitchen, trying to juggle seven or or eight orders and tables all at the same time. If you have ever been in the food service industry, and you are one of those straight-up freaks that doesn't write it down, I don't know how you do that, how your brain is wired to that. I would be so torn. I left that job, and I was already working somewhere else, And I still would sometimes wake up at 2 a.m. and be like, oh my gosh, I forgot the order for table four. And I would be sitting in my bed, literally having a panic attack. I have to tell myself, no, no, you are not back at the kitchen. You are in your bed. You are safe. You are here. 
There are so many instances of us in our lives, we have already been set free, we are already moving into a new reality, but our minds and our hearts are still stuck in who we used to be, where we used to be, what we used to be. For the Israelites, at Mount Sinai, this is their journey. They had freed bodies, but their hearts were still enslaved. This is why God met them at the mountain. This is why they interact. I'll give you a few evidence of it. Exodus chapter 14, verse 12. Israelites say, didn't we tell you this would happen when we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Their bodies were free. Their minds were still in Egypt. In Exodus 16, if only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all of the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Their bodies were free, their minds and hearts still in Egypt. God knows this. He knows this about his people. It's why he says in Exodus 13 verse 7 that God did not lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said, if the people are faced with battle right now, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. They're not ready. They are not fully yet the people I have called them to be. Their minds and their hearts are still in this kingdom, this empire mentality. They are not ready to live fully free. If you look at a map of Egypt, we think of Egypt and we see this imagery of these pyramids and these vast deserts, and we think about it maybe as a desert wasteland that has not been the historical identity of Egypt. In Rome, when Egypt was incorporated into the Roman Empire, Egypt was known as the breadbasket of Rome. It was where all of the food and most of the produce for the entirety of the Roman nation would come from Egypt. It was the area where it was fertile and there was land. The Nile River, one of the largest rivers in the world, runs also just, little side fact, has nothing to do with preaching this morning. Nile River, also one of the only rivers that runs south to north rather than north to south. Just pocket that for yourself and a trivia night later, blow someone's mind. In the Nile River, it flows up and out through the kingdom of Egypt and it forms into these little deltas, little uh, pockets of rivers into creeks and it starts spreading out along there. And every year, that area would flood. It would deposit silt and little dead crustaceans that then form into the soil to make it some of the most fertile land in the world. The area of Goshen, where the Israelites lived, is still today considered one of the top five most fertile lands in the entire world. Has near 100 feet of topsoil to grow and to produce life and crops. So when the Israelites said to Moses, when we were enslaved, at least we ate well, it wasn't just hyperbole. It was true. They lived in a really fertile land, and they may not have had freedom. They might not have been able to do whatever they wanted. They may have been worked hard seven days a week, treated poorly, but their stomachs were well-fed. They were blessed people in that sense. And now it's reversed for them. You're free, but now you're living in an actual desert. You are free and you're free people. You're not being oppressed or abused. But the promise of your meal for tomorrow, you may have to wait on it. The land is not as fertile, but you are free. 
the Israelites' bodies were free, their minds and their hearts still enslaved. I think about the modern church and some of our struggles when it comes to freedom, when it comes to laws and rules and regulation. I do ask this question, and I think some of you have probably asked this as well. Does our modern religion bring freedom? Does it? When we talk about things like the Ten Commandments, when we talk about Exodus laws and Sinai and God-giving regulations, for some of us, there is an actual small moment of traumatic response, of growing up maybe with too many rules, uh, too many opinions and regulations about our lives. One of the struggles of the modern church has been salvation without submission. You may have grown up in a church where every emphasis was on salvation, evangelism, coming and making a decision for Christ, but there was no discipleship. There was no formation. There was no expectation afterwards. Maybe you can even right now remember, I gave my life to Christ about 400 times between the ages of 12 and 21. I just was never quite sure. I just gave it again. The opportunity was there. I gave it again. In a sense, we're expecting the same. If I emphasize salvation alone without formation in my life, I am trusting that my body is free. One day, my body will be resurrected, I will be freed from death, but my mind and my heart are still enslaved to what it means to just live under empire, kingdom, the way of the world, my own sin and shame that I struggle with. I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life, but that's okay because my body will one day be free because I offered a prayer and had one moment in a church. And that is true, and Christ is faithful, but he wants so much more for us than to wait one day for our body to be free. He wants our minds and our hearts to be free here and now. And sometimes we ignore that the Christian sitting in the chair next to us is living a life enslaved by private internal struggles in miniature kingdoms of hell. I can't get free. I won't get there. I'm not good enough. I'm still holding on. No one believes. We have a discipleship problem when we want someone to say a prayer rather than sit in the presence of Jesus in community and long for him to transform our minds and our hearts. This has led to the next modern problem, submission without salvation. That the church may emphasize submission without ever the freedom of Christ. And you may have grown up in a church where it was all about behavior modification and living the right holy life, the right performative life. I am thankful. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and uh, my grandparents would tell stories of themselves in Pentecostal churches in the 30s and 40s and that they weren't allowed to go bowling or go to a movie or walk on the same sidewalk with someone of the same gender, and my grandmother wasn't allowed to wear pants, and all of these sort of regulations— But I grew up in the 80s and 90s in a Christian family with Christian homes. And one comedian today says, I had Christian parents in the 80s and 90s. And if you don't know, those were maybe the most Christian parents that have ever lived were the Christian parents of the 80s and the 90s. Thankfully, my family and my home wasn't this way, but I still knew the church experience. You may have grown up with 
things like purity services and wearing a ring that was a promise for the future of where you would be. And maybe you were only allowed to watch Disney movies. And then at some point, Disney movies then became not good enough in your life. And maybe you grew up and you weren't allowed to read Harry Potter. And then your parents talked to you about C.S. Lewis and there were wizards here and there's a wizard there. And you're like, this wizard's okay and this wizard's not okay. And then you get to the last book and you find out, oh, all of Harry Potter is an allegory for Jesus and for sacrifice. And all of a sudden that becomes okay. And you're trying to figure out what I can watch and what I can't, what I can listen to, what I can't. And you're just swirling around with this understanding of there's so much danger around me. The world is dangerous. I'm never good enough. I need to be better, try harder, be more holy. What it has led to for a whole generation is a rejection of both submission and salvation. People say, I don't want any of it. I don't want you to tell me how to live. I don't want you to tell me what to do. My greatest sense of moral truth is me and who I am, and I'm going to be that person, and don't you try to stop me because I've seen what you've done when you try to control that way. A whole life of rejection of external input into what I decide is right or wrong. My greatest truth becomes me. And I get it. There are trust issues when we ask the question of who made these rules? Who made these rules? And many of us have grown up and we've seen higher institutions of churches fail and fail miserably. For me, I've lived through both all of the Catholic priests and the struggles that have gone on there, the absolute trauma and disgusting behavior and moving around. We've seen it now in the last decade come to roost in evangelical churches doing much of the same, protecting those who have abused, victimizing those who have been abused, siding with the abusers and victimizing those who have been abused. And then we say the question, well, like, who made the rules then? Should I follow this or shouldn't I? Should I trust it or shouldn't I? This is why throughout Exodus, every time God talks about rules and structures and guidance comes packaged in the reminder of his character, of who he is, a reminder of who this one is who is creating these structures and rules. We have this example in Exodus 19. That God says this to the Israelite people whose bodies are free and minds are still enslaved. Exodus 19 that we have already read together, we'll break it down. God says in Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt is a declaration to those who are struggling with slavery to say, you are free. I have set you free. You are no longer slaves, you are free. You are no longer members of empire, you are members of my grace. We see in Exodus 19, God says, I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. I kept you safe. We see God say, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenants, we will be partners. And lastly, we see out of all the nations, you are my treasured possession. You are treasure. And to think about someone who has experienced trauma to think about someone who has experienced and lived a life of enslavement, who has lived under the thumb of empire and might makes right, what it means to say, you are free, you are safe, you do not work for me, you are my partners, and you are a treasured possession, not something I use to accomplish tasks. You are a treasured possession of mine. Maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. 
You are free. You are safe. You are a partner in God's plan and mission. And you are a treasured member of his family in Christ Jesus. You are free. You are safe. You are a partner. And you are treasured. So in understanding that, we now look to the laws and the rules and the regulations that God gives. Complicated point here, but I could not simplify the language any more than this. Israel's laws are the fences within which life can flourish. Might be a hard concept to understand, so I've given you this picture. If you throw up that picture of the Grand Canyon, no, not that one, no, not that one. The orderly one of the Grand Canyon with a fence. That's the one. There it is. If you've ever visited something like the Grand Canyon, um, I am a little bit afraid of heights. I honestly think it came from this church here and operating on projectors and lights up there and being on the ladder developed a fear of heights. So when I visit places like this, I am not one of those brave ones that gets up to the edge of the cliff. But if there is a guardrail there, I'll get right up to the guardrail because I know that I'm safe. I can experience the fullness of the beauty, the fullness of the freedom that's in that because I know that there is a guardrail of safety. This is the law that God gives. This is how the rules operate in Scripture. They are guardrails not to prevent us from experiencing the beauty of life, but in order to let us know we are safe as we experience it. Now, as we already kind of teased you, there are examples of people who don't. If you have ever experienced this concept, does anyone know the term torons? It is a tourist moron. It is someone who goes and visits somewhere, doesn't follow any of the rules of it. Most popular in the national parks. This happened, honestly, during the pandemic. National parks were pretty cool. You would go there if you were kind of like a granola person or you liked getting out there. During the pandemic, we couldn't do anything with anyone anywhere, and so people would go outside. Also, Instagram became hugely popular, and if you saw a really cool site outside, you made it even cooler and told everybody where it was, and you put it on your Instagram, and you put a really cool filter on it, and then all of a sudden, the national parks exploded with people who wanted to go there but did not value the beauty or the rules necessary to visit these beautiful sites. All right, show me that next slide there. People do crazy things like this. Just, I'm going to jump over the rail because it's really cool and it'll make a cool video on my TikTok. So record me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be safe. Show me the next one. It just got to jump over, you know? It's fine. I'll make it. I'm going to make it. It looks like he made it. I'm going to get over there. And then show me the last one. There are lots of videos like this. If you want a good time after this, you go on YouTube or go on TikTok or go on your Instagram reels and search for Torons. And what you'll see, my favorite version, is people who think that wild bison or buffalo are some sort of stuffed animal creature that you can just get near and are not ginormous two-ton weighing beasts that can just flip you over their head. There are videos after videos of people getting way too close to very dangerous creatures. This is what God is working to prevent us from in our own lives, in our experience of living in creation, of living as human beings. He sets guardrails not to restrict us and to hold us down, but in order that we would be safe to live the full freedom he has planned for us. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 119 verse 14, Lord, I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. Psalm 119, verse 20, I am always overwhelmed with a desire for your regulations. Psalm 119, verse 24, your laws please me. They give me wise 
advice. This is the longest psalm in all of the book of Psalms, the longest chapter in all of Scripture, is a chapter of poetic song thanking God for creating laws and regulations. Maybe not the modern expectation we have romantically, but is the heart of Scripture. God, thank you for showing us how to live life. Thank you for setting our limits so that we can flourish without destroying. God's law, his rules, his covenant expectations are not supposed to be a millstone tied around the neck of his community, but are guardrails for our flourishing. And I'll tell you, One way to understand this, we think about the covenant, and we think about New Testament, and we think about Old Testament. We think about New Testament covenant as grace. We live in grace. Jesus Christ has given us this free gift. We live in it. But in the Old Testament, they lived under Old Testament law. And so I serve Jesus out of the grace he's already given me. I don't have to do it. I get to do it. But in the Old Testament, they had to do it. Otherwise, God wouldn't set them free. But where does the moment of Sinai and the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words or the Ten Laws, where do they exist in Exodus? Chapters 19 and 20. Where is Exodus set free? Chapters 11 and 12. The law came after Israel was already freed. The law did not set Israel free. The Old Testament is not laws set you free. You are free by my grace. And in my grace, I am showing you how to live. If you want to live a flourishing life, not of destruction and death and pain, here is how I am showing you to live. And I have proven it already by setting you free. And in that freedom, now continue to remain free. God responded to the cry of his people. So how does God bless humanity? How does he do it? Why does the law exist then? Well, the law creates the boundaries that promote love, compassion, and sanctity of human life in a community of continual renewal. God's law provides the guardrails to which love, compassion, and the sanctity of human life can flourish. That is what the law does. Now let's look at it. If you're uh, some of our older in the community, you may really recognize this poster. Let's talk about the Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston up there. He's given it to us. He's given it to us powerfully. He's got that law. He's a white guy playing an Egyptian Jewish man. It's just what we did back then. That's okay. But he's bringing the law, and it's powerful, right? There's, if the poster was bigger, there'd be lightning striking onto the Ten Commandments. He's given it. It's so important that there's an intermission in the middle of the movie because the law just is that important, is that big, is that epic. Let's talk about the Ten Commandments. Um. This might surprise you. There are 10 of them. Um, there are two different traditions, ways that you break them up, actually. Um, if you are Catholic, um, you pair the top two together of who God is and how to not create idols. And then you break the last two together about coveting uh, neighbor's home and neighbor's wife. Those are two separate. If you are a Protestant, you separate the top two and then you combine the bottom two not that big of a deal. They both come out to 10. There is a little bit of a difference in them. Let's look at them each and see how we understand them together. I'll give you a way to try and categorize the 10 commandments in a way that I think brings flourishing and brings life. 
And it also fits how Jesus talks about God's laws and God's commands. They ask him, Jesus, what are the most important commands? Kind of a weird question. You would think he'd be like, well, they're all important. I have no favorite child. They're all important and special. But no, he says, I'll tell you, there are two that are important. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments can be understood the same. The first two, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The next eight, how do I love my neighbor from that abundance of love? How do I love God? From that love, how do I now love my neighbor? Let's look at each one very briefly and quickly. I'm going to be using, actually, um, some scholarship by a scholar named Carmen Imes. Wrote a book called uh, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. It's a beautiful, wonderful book. Also a very easy read. Also, you don't have to be a scholar to read it, but there's wonderful scholarship in it. We're going to look at her approach to the Ten Commandments. First, worship God alone. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. You must have no other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the seas. You must not bow down to them or worship them. You see, this is the first two that we might understand sometimes. This is them together. And what God is saying here to a people of Israelites who are coming out of Egypt, Egypt, a kingdom where there are dozens of gods that represent different forces, different factors. There's gods of wheat, there's gods of rain, there's gods of sun, there's gods of death, there's gods of life, there's gods of war. There are all these different gods out there. God is saying the first and foremost thing I want you to understand is not the chaos of multiple gods working out of their own personalities and their own whims. I want you to know that there is one God who is is in charge of all things. There is not chaos in the world, that there is order. One God with a divine plan to bring all of this to fruition. One God who when I talk to you about my character, you know that that is the character of all that has been created. That is how you exist and why the world works. There are no other gods but me. The second then do not misuse God's name. Or you may understand it as take the Lord's name in vain. You may have grown up in a setting where that means you don't use God's name in a profanity or in a curse word. That's not the intent of this passage. What the Lord is speaking is, if you represent my name, and I'm forming you into a community, you will represent me on this earth. You are meant to be a light to the rest of the nations that they would also know the one who created them, what he is like. So as you live your life now, you are living your life bearing my name. And do not bear my name lightly or falsely or untruthfully. As you represent me, represent me well because they will look to you and they will know who I am by you. You bear my name. Do not bear it in vain. Do not bear it lightly. Represent who I am. Now, these are the first two. How we worship. One God. That's how we know the world is good because of his character. We know it is fallen when it does not reveal his character. We are called to know this God and to represent him. Now, the next eight could be considered by some to be, if it gives you helpful to use American lingo, the Israelite Bill of Rights. This is how to treat other people, how to honor their freedom of how God has made them in eight laws, eight rules. 
The first practice the Sabbath. Super weird to be the first one. A Sabbath day, something about the calendar, something about rest. But imagine that you are a people who have been enslaved for 400 years. You don't have a day off. You work every day from sunup to sundown. You work until your hands bleed. You work until your back hurts. You die a life young because you have been worked down to the bone. There's no rest. There's no joy. I have lived under the kingdom of empire. An empire uses people until they are dust, throws them out, and uses the next. He says, no, that is not your kingdom and is not how you treat each other. You treat each other in a world where there is rest and there is an order to life where life is to be enjoyed. And a human being is to be given space to enjoy their life and to enjoy what I have given them. You are no longer slaves and you don't work seven days. You are free and there is a full day each week for you to enjoy one another, enjoy me, enjoy the creation I give you. Second rule or the fourth total, honor your father and mother. As we go through these, see each of these laws through the lens of freedom to the other people around us. What does it mean that these bring freedom? To give Sabbath as a means of freedom. To honor father and mother as a means of freedom. The Israelites are a high honor culture. That means mother and father is honored. The stories of grandmother and grandfather are honored. What he's saying is that honoring your father and mother is not about using that as a manipulation tool so that your kids will behave well. Please don't do that. Parents don't do that. It's very tempting. I know that it is there. But it is a reminder to us that the older generations that have come before us matter. That they're important. What has happened matters. The stories of what they've experienced matter to us. We continue to keep those stories alive. We have the scriptures because generations before us have kept the story alive. We have the story of Exodus because generations before us have kept it alive. And one day, each of us, if everything goes well in our life, we will be at a stage of our life in our later elder years where we are vulnerable. And the command says, take care of the vulnerable in your community. Honor your father and mother. Bring them into your home when they are older. Visit them. See them. Take care of them. Slow down your life when you are at the peak of it in your 40s and 50s. Sacrifice that vacation. Sacrifice that resource so that you take care of your mother and your father. When you are younger, spend time and value your grandfather, your grandmother. Take care of the older generation. And this one comes to the promise. If you do that, you will live a long life. Why? Because your children and your grandchildren will see that you took care of the generation before you and when you are vulnerable, they will know this in this family, in this community, this is what we do and they will take care of you. It is a promise that if you take care of the generation before you, the next generation will take care of you. It is freedom and promise and protection for those around us. Do not murder. All right, let's move on. No, do not murder. Is to a community to say that life is sacred and life is valuable. Don't kill somebody? Okay, yeah, understood that. I, I hear that. But Jesus says if you've been angry at anyone else in your mind and in your heart, it's just as if you've murdered them. Or what if you live in a kingdom, in a community, in an empire that is okay with devaluing and taking human life? If you live in a community where life is not sacred, where people are not important or valuable. 
We live in a kingdom in the United States, beautiful, blessing nation that has taken so many in, that provides so many resources and safety and life. But we also, in this pattern, have the right to call out our communities when they are not behaving this way. When the vulnerable are not treated with sanctity, how do we have conversations around abortion and the sanctity of life that both value the young life growing inside the mother and also with dignity and respect honor the conditions and the circumstances the mother are in? How do we have that conversation with life that brings sanctity to all of life that is born? How do we talk about our borders and immigrants and those coming in that respects the dignity of the people who are there and does not use them as political chips and tools? How do we value all of life as sacred? The next, I totally lost track of where I am, but I think it's the sixth. Do not commit adultery. To speak about the sanctity of life to now extend it to the bodies that we live in. That our body is not a shell that carries around life. Our body is life. It will be resurrected one day. And to say that your body is important to people who were once owned by another nation, to say even the sanctity of your body is important. Do not abuse it and abuse others. When you are seeking someone to join your life to in matrimony and in full vulnerability, do not utilize that person's body for your own gain. And do not waste your own and treat it flippantly. There are bonds of commitment and honor. Seven, do not steal to honor the property of another. That you have what you have and it is yours to have and I will not trick you Uh, work against you, undermine you to take advantage, but that the sanctity of your freedom is in what you own. That there is freedom that comes from being financially secure and that we honor one another and do not take advantage. And now the next, do not lie about your neighbor. In a community that is a high honor culture, to lie about someone in your community is to take away all their possibility of life, prospects of marriage for their children, land that they could get, any influence in the community. If I besmirch or lie or slander your name, it will destroy the future of your family. Value and honor each other with how you speak about one another. Do not lie about someone else's life for your own gain. And then it says, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet what your neighbor has. Respect and honor what you have. Live a life of abundance in what you have been provided into your life. In our lives, there is one way in order to live at peace and the fullness of peace and joy in your life, and that is to accept the life that you have. There is no, I'll give you an illustration of it. You have never been dissatisfied with your cell phone if you never knew that another one existed. It's mine, I love it. We've gone on so many adventures together. You've shown me so many pictures that have made me doubt myself and my value. Thank you, phone. And we love it until I'm being marketed a new phone, until my friend comes and their phone is now either this big or this big, and either one is bad for the size of my phone, and now all of a sudden I don't want it anymore. What God says is to honor and to be at peace with the life, the resources that you have given. Live at peace with yourself and to let your neighbor live at peace with themselves. 
They have a Tesla, good for them. You have an old Toyota Celica from 2001, live at peace with that. Be at peace with what you have in your life. And then do not covet your neighbor's, it says wife, it says possessions, it says farm, it says materials, anything that they have in their life. Have peace in your own home and what God has blessed you with. These are guide rails to bring flourishing to the people around us, to protect freedom, not to remove it, to guard and protect one another. And as we look at these 10 words, these 10 commandments, we then see Moses walk down. Can I get Charlton Heston back on the screen again? This is Charlton Heston, um, old guy. Um, There he is holding a tablet above his head. In the bigger posters, it's two tablets, right? And the question is, why two? Um, was God inefficient with writing on stone and he couldn't fit it all onto one, so he needed two? And this is not what I'm talking about where Moses destroys it and has to do it again. That actually makes four tablets. Why write it on two? You have to know a little bit about ancient Near Eastern law code. Thankfully, I know a little. In ancient Near Eastern law code, when you made a treaty or a covenant with another nation, you make a covenant, you sit down together, and you say, this is what I expect from you, this is what you expect from us, that our nations would live in peace. In order to do this, then, we write our agreement onto two tablets, and you take one back to your people, I take one back to my people. It's not a carbon copy yet, the technology didn't exist, but it's the same idea. You hold what we agreed on, I hold what we agreed on. It's the way that we hold each other accountable. We both signed it, we both have one, it holds us to agreement. So this is a covenant a contract, a marriage ceremony between God and his people. He makes two because it is a contract of how we will live together. If you live according to these rules, I promise you, your lives will move in flourishing and freedom. If you don't, I am telling you, not because I will punish you necessarily, but because this is the way to flourish. And if you don't, your lives will move back into slavery. But he makes two. Now, if we push it further, what is inside the Ark of the Covenant? Only two things. The two stone tablets of the covenant. Why are they in there? That's where God lives. Why doesn't God have one and the Israelites carry the other? And God has one, so we can say to the Israelites, hey, this is what you said. The Israelites have the other. But God, this is what you said. No, he puts both into the Ark because God says... This is a covenant I am making with you. I will bear both halves of the covenant. I will bear both of them. I will promise you and I will keep my promise and I will hold on to all of it that you can hold me to all of it. I will bear every moment of this. I have set you free. I am giving you the directions to remain free. It is a marriage covenant between my people and myself and I will keep this covenant from now until forever. I will hold it in my presence. And so we move finally back to today to what does it mean to be a community of freedom and renewal? How do we live in this communal mindset? How do we live as this covenant agreement in this marriage with the God who has made us? First, what I want to say is that we don't live in a covenant where this has been thrown out. There are a whole bunch of extra laws added later for rituals and purity and ethnic ideas. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the core of God's expectation of human flourishing. When they ask Jesus, he says in Matthew 5.17, he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. 
I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I came to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them in your presence, to place the covenant, both copies of the covenant, onto my own heart, onto myself on the cross, onto myself in the grave. I will keep the pattern going, and I will bear this covenant myself all the way through to the grave and into resurrection. One of my Old Testament professors had a really cool theory about Exodus. And he said, when you read Exodus, the numbers that it talks about in how many people leave Israel is really hard to fathom. He was like, there's probably some hyperbole in ancient language because if they were a million people, the line of Israel would literally stretch from Egypt all the way to Israel, to Canaan, unbroken. That's how many people it would be. It would be impossible. He says, what we do know is there were communities of people who along the 40-year journey of Israel in the desert, along their 40-year covenant of becoming God's people, of getting the mindset of empire out of themselves, where people are able to be used and where we use power to bring safety. He says, as the mindset sinks in that human life is sacred and beautiful and to be protected, as we now value the bonds of commitment we make and we live generously with one another, he said what's most likely to have happened was this community was so attractive to the other peoples of the land that they joined with Israel. They became a part of Israel themselves. They said, that's a community that doesn't have a king. They are wandering in the desert to their land without an army. They are not coming in to slaughter. They are living and sharing with one another. I want to be a part of that community. They hold to marriage and women have value and aren't just traded around. I want to be a part of that community that you come into. They have a day of rest. You guys rest. I want to be in that community. The community that God formed in that wilderness was a community of life, abundant. A community of rules that brought flourishing to his people. I don't know about you. I live as a pastor in the last 14 years, oftentimes under a little blanket of sadness of the dialogue of how people view the church in the modern world. But they don't view it like this. They don't. They view us as, honestly, what the rules are trying to fight, that we use people, that we side with abusers and not the abused, that we take advantage and all we want is money from people and we don't value their life and there's no space for flourishing and it's just loud to get people to make a commitment to then serve back into our churches, to utilize them for our own ideology. And it's not a community of flourishing people who are learning to lean into the presence of a loving, gracious God and are then bringing that abundance into the world around them. How do we become a community that is transformed? Part of it is committing to the fact that we can be transformed and that where I am is not where God wants me to be and that until one day I open my eyes in the presence of Christ, I am not done being transformed. I am not done being made into the image of Jesus. Richard Foster, one of the most influential voices of formation in Christian life, in what he thought would be his last sermon about formation, he's since lived much longer than that, he said in it, I think one of the problems today 
is that we have accepted our brokenness and just said, well, that's me. That's who I am. I'm never going to change. I'm just broken like that. I can't keep promises. My friends have to just accept that about me. I'm very controlling and hard to be around. That's just me. Either love it or hate it. Rather than saying, I can be transformed into the image of Christ, not by trying harder, but by creating environments with safe guardrails where we sit in the presence of Jesus as a community and invite him to transform us. Church, we are moving into the perfect season to do this in the season of Lent. We will have seven weeks of making space for longing, seven weeks of talking about who I am, who I would like to be in Christ Jesus, and talking with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How can we get there? Hold me accountable. Speak into my life. Help me set rules into my life. Examine myself that I may say as the psalmist in Psalm 119 that, God, I love your law. It has blessed my life. It has made me better. It has transformed me. We are not agents of chaos in a chaotic world. We are God's priests bringing order to a chaotic world, but we cannot do that until we have made a covenant in our hearts and our lives to bring order into our lives. If you'll pray with me this morning. With every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to give an opportunity. If you're in the room this morning and you just don't even consider yourself to be a member of God's community, you don't even know what that means, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to pray a prayer, to pray it along with us, to invite Jesus Christ to begin to transform your life, to make you new, to renew you, to make you more like Christ, and to bring that salvation and submission into your heart and soul. If you pray with me, Lord, in this moment, I recognize my frailty, my chaotic nature, I need saving. I need transforming of my body, my mind, and my heart. Jesus, I believe that you came to this earth to make a new covenant, to renew this covenant, to fulfill this covenant, to bear this covenant, that you would be in relationship with us. Jesus, I believe that you were God and man, and you still are fully God and fully man. Lived a righteous, perfect life. And then instead of receiving the reward for that righteousness, you received our punishment for sin, chaos, and brokenness. And that on the cross, you put to death our sin and shame. You were buried in the ground, and on the third day, you conquered sin and death. You rose from the grave, setting us free forever if we call on your name. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today I confess my sin, my need, and commit my life to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.